we'll continue our series that we started four weeks ago or so on uh, lies that we live by. These are things that we willingly accept, seems like, or not, perhaps not even willingly, but uh, unthinkingly accept and live by. Um, and, and we often believe in lies without even knowing that we, we do. Ideas are packaged in such a way that they look shiny and attractive, and we tend to gravitate to, toward them. We assume that a concept is true because it is being pushed by everyone around us. We tend to think of truth as dictated by um, a majority. Or we, we think that something is, is, we should do because it works. Uh, in the United States, there's only one school of philosophy, and I don't mean like a, a brick-and-mortar place that people go to study, but uh, uh, ideology. There's only one school of philosophy that was actually created in the United States, and that is pragmatism. Whatever works is what determines whether it's right or wrong, whether it's true or not, and, and we buy into those things uh, sometime. And sometimes we believe lies because we want to fit in. We can get it, it can be tiring standing for what is true. It can be uh, it can bring you down. It can just be a burden to always be standing for what is true, especially in this area of the country where um, darkness seems to be greater and greater and greater. And uh, it just it just it, it's it wears you down, and sometimes we give in and, and start living according to lies just because we're just plain old uh, tired. Another reason we believe in, in, in lies and live by them is that uh, perhaps we can be a little too lazy to actually think through things and just take whatever is offered to us and we don't uh, think through things. And in this series, we're trying to challenge lies that have been unwittingly or sometimes even deliberately embraced by, the Christian, by Christians in our culture, uh, specifically the, the American culture and uh, in more liberal places like ours. My desire is for us to have our eyes opened to false notions in our own lives so that we can in turn also help others see that. It's a Matthew 7 sort of, of thing. Now, Jesus says, first take that plank out of your own eye before you can go help somebody else with their speck. So what lies are we believing that we need to repent of so that actually can be effective instruments in God's hand in blessing others? Um, these are the kinds of ideas uh, that, that we're talking about. And we started looking at them three or four weeks ago. A lot of these things are gospel truths, as it were, in our society. Follow your heart. Trust your instinct. They never lie. Live your truth. You are enough. You should put yourself first. Authenticity is everything. The TH sound is the most devastating sound for a Brazilian, by the way. So, um, uh, You only live once. You only have one life to live, right? YOLO. Um, God just wants you to be happy. You shouldn't judge. You are the boss of you. It's all about love. Believe in yourself. You're perfect just as you are. Some of these are not, they are not, these are not mutually exclusive lies. Some of these are just different ways of saying, of saying the same 
thing. But these are, are lies that we that we that have been extracted from Christian literature, not from just self secular self help books, but from Christian literature. These are things that are being sold to Christians and by Christians. So far, we've looked at the first one: follow your heart. And we saw that the heart is corrupt and desperately wicked. Uh, we address also the second one, trust your instinct. They never lie. That's a, that's a different way to say follow your heart. Um, we, we, and then we look at the idea of live your truth. Just live your truth. Be you. That's another way of saying. You do you, right? And there's no such thing as my truth and your truth. There is the truth and then lies. Now, we sometimes use this language to talk about opinions. And I think, did I use the dessert example? Yeah. I did? Ice cream. Yeah, whatever else, right? Yeah. Uh, that, uh, what is that, what's the best dessert? Well, that, those are going to be opinions, right? So it's not going to be your truth and my truth, but my opinion and your opinion. There's only one truth. We might have different opinions, but there's just one truth. Tonight... I would like to examine another claim that is very popular in our culture, and that is the claim that you are enough. You are enough. Sign is going, ooh, 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 there in the back. <laughs> in, in a book titled, Girls, Wash Your Face, Stop Believing Lies About Who You Are So You Can Become Who You Were Meant to Be. Great title, though, by the way. Rachel Hollis says this, she says, I studied the gospel and finally grasped the divine knowledge that I am loved and worthy and enough as I am. And you read that, and then you expect, as you, you keep reading that, she would say something about being loved and worthy and enough because of her union with Christ since she has been studying the gospel. Right? That's how she starts there. But as you keep on reading, you see that she mean, what she means is exactly... Like she stated, she is loved, worthy enough in and of herself. She is enough, just by herself, just the way she is. Now, why, why even spend time talking about this? Well, because the message that you're enough is a hopeless message. We all know that we are not enough. At least we know that we're not enough 100% of the time. Is that fair to say? I hope we all can think of a time where we came to a realization of about, at least about a particular thing that we weren't enough for that or a situation where we weren't enough. We all have been in situations where we know that we're not enough. Despair, difficulty, decisions, health. And to be told that we are enough just makes a tough situation even tougher. You're in the pit of despair, and to tell you're enough, you're sufficient in and of yourself, when you've been trying to climb out of that pit of despair by yourself, is a hopeless message. You're enough is a message that enslaves people to the false idea that they are responsible to be the mastermind of their current circumstances and future realities, even when they are completely overwhelmed by life. It even burdens us with the obligation of being the source of our own joy, contentment, and peace, because after all, you're enough. You don't need anything else, you're enough. 
So that's a message of despair, a hopelessness. All that this idea does is make us selfish, self-reliant, and self-focused. Because you're enough. Don't need anything else or anybody else. Uh, Rachel Hollis says that uh, she studied the gospel and arrived at this conclusion. The problem with, that con- with her conclusion is that the gospel is about somebody else. You can't study the gospel and arrive at the conclusion that you are enough. Because the gospel, by necessity, says that you are not enough. And there is somebody else who is enough for both of you. What is another way to talk about this idea that you're enough? Which is actually more common in, in our society. Another gift of the baby boomers to us. Because they keep on giving. Remember the, the different... Uh, the different uh, what? Watch it. Right? The different uh, generations and the titles and so on. The baby boomers, the biggest generation... The most selfish generation, um, that kind of stuff. No offense to you, baby boomers. You're the exception. You are enough. Uh, <laughs> what is another way to talk about this idea of you're enough? You are enough. It's being just in the middle of educational system, um, uh, Oprah, uh, and everything else. It's the idea of self-esteem. Another label for the you are enough doctrine is self-esteem. In the middle to late 20th century, so that's why I say it's another gift of the baby boomers, uh, Christians embraced the idea of self-esteem. We have been conditioned to think that if we just love ourselves more, everything will get better. And we're starting to reap the harvest of almost an entire generation being raised in this idea that uh, you're number one. Everybody's here to serve you. you hey, everybody's a winner. Uh, trophies for everybody. That's all in this idea of you're enough. You're the self-esteem. And we are creating a society that's not able to work with one another. And that eventually will be the destruction, I think, of Western society. Because a society that's all about the self, the individual, will not uh, persevere, will not perpetuate itself. And the reason to say that you're supposed to love yourself more uh, and everything get better is that the you are enough doctrine is based on the assumption that people are basically good. In the Christian, again, I'm not talking about the big bad world out there. I'm talking about these ideas are in Christian literature, best-selling Christian literature. But if that were true, all we would need to do is to do a deep dive into our own hearts and tap into all the virtue just waiting to be discovered there. We could pull from our unlimited reservoir of creativity, power, beauty, truth, and goodness because we are enough. And we could be the solution for everything. If all of this were true, then when someone was struggling with his or her identity, worth, or even so-called mental health issues, we should indeed point out to him or to her how wonderful they are. 
Just keep on telling them how great they are. The problem is that doesn't work. But we bought into that. In a recent, uh, in a May 2021 uh, survey, not a Barner survey, Barner tends to prove whatever he wants to prove, but uh, in a serious survey, uh, um, sorry, I shouldn't say that. Maybe, maybe his group is very serious. But in a May 2021 <laughs> survey, 80%, 81% of Americans believe that this would be the solution to their problems. If people just tell them that they are great, that they're enough, that that would be the solution. 81% of Americans. And then the same survey showed that over 50% of Americans think that they are the greatest person they ever known. Better than anybody else in their lives. In 25 years of ministry, I only found one person to say that. To say that. One man who said that he, as a father, never made a mistake in his life in raising his kids. That's the only person who was actually willing. I mean, I, there's a lot of people that believe that, but I only met one that was willing to actually say that. Hold on, I lost my spot here. It all sounds so positive and affirming. You're great, Tim. You, you need to love yourself. You have the greatest beard, Tim. You're, it, that should make you really... No, it sounds so positive and affirming, but deep down, we know that humans aren't basically good. Parents are keenly aware of that about themselves and about their kids. I don't think there's one, again, outside of this one man, I don't think there's any parent who truly thinks that they were, they did everything right with their kids. I tend to, I keep on praying to the Lord and thanking Him for overriding me more often than, than, than the other way. Um, there's often a sense of failure as parents. I don't know if you ever felt uh, that. Hannah, if you haven't, it's coming. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> but parents also know that they don't need to teach their kids to misbehave. Now, no, Johnny, here it goes. I want you to lie. I don't want to, Dad. I don't know how. Well, let me teach you how. No, that doesn't happen. They don't, we don't need, parents don't need to teach their kids to lie. They don't need to teach them to be selfish. All parents have had the universal experience of a child who, who is 100% uninterested in a toy till another child wants to play with it. And then it's the most precious toy that child ever saw, enough to start World War III in your living room. Right? So we know, that deep down we know, that humans aren't basically good. The uh, you are enough doctrine produces self-centered, selfish people, and the self-esteem and self-help movement can't explain why. We've, we've been telling them they're so great all their lives, and yet they have all these troubles, and they're selfish, and they can't work well with others. Why? Why is that going on? Well, the reason it doesn't work is the very design of humanity. The Bible teaches that humanity was created in the image of God 
to live in dependence on him. Super familiar passage that we tend to, um, the entirety of Genesis 1 is so familiar to us that we tend to miss what's going on here. So here we have Genesis 26 through 28 where God is creating humanity and then is expanded in chapter 2. And says this, Then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. Then God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. There is a, a radical thing that we miss because of this passage is so familiar. Do you ever notice, notice that if you read Genesis 1, there's a cadence in the account of creation? Remember how it goes? Day 1, God creates light declares that it's good, and then there's evening and morning, the first day is over. Day two, creates heaven and earth, land and water, declares it's good, and there's evening and morning, the second day. Day three, day four, God creates something, declares it is good, and the beat goes on until he decides to create people, humans. What happens when he decides to create humans? For six days, right, because humans are created in six days, somewhere into the sixth day, there's this pattern going on. And all of a sudden, something changed. What is that changes? What does God do differently in this passage right here? Especially at the last verse. He talks to them. He didn't talk to the moon. He didn't talk to the birds. He didn't talk to the waters or the oceans. He didn't talk. But now, he talks to them. Why did God talk to them? Why did God talk with them? Not rhetorical. Any brainstorming time. And what does that mean? Why is that an explanation to why he talked to them? Because man can talk back to them. Okay, what else? There's a different relationship between us and God. A different relationship between humanity and God because they're created in God's image, like uh, Linda said. What else? Could it be that he talked to them because they needed God to talk to them? I think that's a good assumption, right? God knew that even though Adam and Eve were perfect people living in a perfect relationship with him, they could not figure out life on their own. And God needed to talk with them. They were created to be dependent. This is before sin. By the way, that shows that we would still need counseling even if we weren't sinners. Adam and Eve needed counseling to figure out what they're supposed to do. 
God had to explain who they were and what they were to do with their lives. They didn't need help because they were sinners. They needed help because they were, what? People, humans. This is really the first instance of ministry in human, personal ministry in human history. And it comes from God to the people he created. The uh, wonderful counselor comes to human beings and defines their identity and purpose. And why couldn't Adam, Adam and Eve live without this? And I'll give you three reasons. So are you starting to see how you are enough thing doesn't work if you believe in the Bible? Or if you're alive, actually, and with a brain, but mostly because of the Bible? Three reasons why Adam and Eve could not live without this. First one, Adam and Eve were created to be revelation receivers. Humanity were created to be revelation Receivers. They were given the ability to communicate that no other creature was given. They were created with the ability to hear, understand, and apply God's word to their lives. And these abilities were not given primarily to encourage human relationships. They were given primarily to do what? To encourage relationship with God in the vertical sense. They were given so that we could know God and understand Him. The rest of creation doesn't need these abilities. And I think we know that intrinsically. I hope none of us go to our backyard and start talking to the pine tree or whatever bushes you have. Maybe you do, I don't know. Maybe you talk to your tomato trees to help them grow or sing to them. Maybe that helps. I think we have somebody guilty of that right here. And <laughs> but we, we don't go to the backyard and try to have a theological discussion with the pine tree or the whatever bush you may have in your backyard. Because we know the bush brings glory to God by just being there. But humans need, God, need God's word to live fully for his glory. Our culture tends to think that we need help because something we did or something was done to us. Genesis 1 tells us and confronts us with the fact that our need for help preceded sin. We are created to be dependent on God and to receive revelation from Him. So trying to live without God's help is to assign ourselves a subhuman existence. The you are enough doctrine puts people in a subhuman existence, a level where you don't need God, you don't need to have God speak into your life through His Word, so you're not human. Are you following? I, I'm not saying some people are physically transforming. Not, and that's not, I'm just saying that the, the, the category of a person who doesn't need God and revelation from God, it, it doesn't exist in the Bible. Because to be human is to need to receive guidance from, from God. So, to live without revelation from God is to live like an animal, as if I, we were something other than what we are. Humans were created to live on the platform of God's revelation, which is why we were given the unique ability to communicate. So why is, it, why is the doctrine you, uh, that, that says you are enough is not good, is not true? Because you were created to be revelation receivers, to need that from, from God. 
Any questions before we continue? Second, Adam and Eve were created to be interpreters. That is to say that humans were created to think, to be thinking beings. That's what homo sapiens means, right? The thinking man in, in, in Latin. We don't just take the bare facts of life as they are and live by them. We are meaning makers. We, we live our lives according to our own interpretation of facts. When we say that God designed humans to be interpreters, we are getting at the heart of why humans do what they do. Our thinking, uh, our thinking conditions our emotions, our sense of identity, our view of others, our way of solving our problems, and our willingness to receive counsel from others. And that is why... We need a framework for generating valid interpretations that help us respond to life appropriately. And that is the Word of God. Only the Word of our Creator can give us that framework to help us live like interpreters. Framework is what helps us to see everything properly. It's our worldview. It's the lenses through which we see the world. And we need that from God. So to say that you're enough, apart from anything God gives you, is a lie. Questions on that? So there'll be three things. Here's the third thing. Adam and Eve, and Eve were created to be worshippers. Some have suggested that instead of homo sapiens, it would be more biblically accurate if uh, uh, our class would be called homo adherents, the worshipping man. They were, we were created so that everything in our lives drew its meaning and purpose from the person, presence, and purpose of God. Because of this design, everything a person does expresses worship. Did you get that? Everything that you and I do expresses worship, whatever that thing is. So what you do and the way you do it express your desire to serve something. Humans cannot be divided into those who worship and those who don't. There's only, if you're a human, you worship. Every person that has ever lived has been a worshiper. The problem is that the fall has distorted this creative design as well, and we are often stealing worship. And when you say you are enough, guess who you're worshiping? Yourself, myself. So because we are worshipers by nature, we're always, one, giving proper worship or serving something else or more likely worshiping ourselves. Those are the only three choices that there are. And this idea of self-esteem, of loving yourself, or of, of thinking of yourself as the best is self-worship. And you might think, boy, do you just want us to think of us as the worst thing ever? You just want to think of us as miserable? No. What I want is for us to just, just not think of ourselves. Just forget. Right? Do, do a Paul thing, forgetting the things that are behind. Press forward toward the mark of the high calling that we have in the gospel. Uh, C.S. Lewis, who is not one of us, is not a Bible-believing uh, evangelical, but he had some things good to say. One of the things that humility is not thinking less of yourself, 
is thinking of yourself less. Don't be so consumed with thinking about you. That's what we are really after here. And self-worship is the demand to be the center of our own universe. And that's what the doctrine of self-esteem has created now for a couple decades of being taught in our public schools. We have people now that are adults and that demand to be the center of everyone's universe. The problem is the universe can only have one center. That's mathematically proven. You can only have one center, not multiple. And that's going to create a lot of trouble, right? Because you have all these centers now vying for that privileged position. But we're not even to the fall yet in the book of Genesis. Adam and Eve were created to respond to God's revelation in worship because of the Godward referent in them. And that is part of being made in God's image, to need God's revelation, to, to be interpreters based on God's revelation, and then to worship God in response to God's revelation. So you're not enough. You're not enough. You need God through the Lord Jesus Christ in your life. Any questions? All right. Hmm. We're going, we were going to, the next thing we're going to see is that the Bible teaches that people naturally, by nature, want to get their own way, serve their own desires, and resist letting God be in charge of their lives. That's why the idea of you are, not, you are enough is so, so appealing because we, we don't want to be dependent on anybody else. We want to, Frank Sinatra was right. In that, not that, uh, that that worked, but he did his own way, right? Uh, uh, and that's kind of what all of us naturally desire to, to do. And we resist letting God be in charge of our lives. And yet, we can't exist apart from God being in charge of, of our lives. I think we're going to stop here. And then we're going to start, Lord willing, next week with then looking at uh, how the Bible doesn't really mince words when it comes out to our true condition since the fall and how we are not enough. If we haven't gotten that through yet, Lord willing, we can get that through next week. Any questions at all about the things we've been talking about? All right, so let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you that you are enough, even though we are not. We thank you that Jesus Christ's life, death, and resurrection is enough for you to receive us um, into your family for all eternity. Help us to look at this world with open eyes. Help us to look at our own hearts with open eyes. We pray that we would repent of any lies that we are living by, that we would grab on, cling to the truth of your word for asking in Jesus' name. Amen.